0: Putting away money for retirement, since I'm not gonna be doing this podcast forever. Sorry. I guess I could, but retirement is huge for me. I am deeply focused on it right now. And planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. Taxes are a doozy. And it's always changing. How do you know what to do? Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you.
1: The legends are true. Overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes!
0: supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now
3: your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby
0: Dunn. Hello, hello, dear deadbeats. I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've said it. Maybe you've shaken your fists at the sky and screamed it. Maybe you have it tattooed on you somewhere. In any case, it is so true. The rent is too damn high. And if it seems like you're making less money but paying more to have a roof over your head, you are right. This is measurably true. There are stats. There are facts. Across the whole country, housing costs are rising faster than wages. And wages not only aren't rising, they're falling. Right now, if you've got a full-time job making minimum wage, you can afford the rent on a two-bedroom apartment only if you live in nowhere. Literally nowhere. In the entire country, there is nowhere you can reasonably afford a two-bedroom apartment. That fun fact is care of a study from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, who also says you'd need to work three full-time minimum wage jobs to afford the average two-bedroom. How is this okay? While the number of homeless people nationwide has been trending downward in the most expensive areas, looking at you, LA, and New York, the population of people living on the streets is still shockingly high. Homelessness, where I am in Los Angeles, has gone up 75% since the end of the Great Recession. It costs us too much to live. The impossibility of finding somewhere to live dovetails with everything money, childcare, healthcare, health care, ability to maintain a job, just everything we have a right to as human beings. Whenever possible on this show, I really enjoy having elected officials in the studio to talk to my audience. I think it's incredibly important right now for us to hear candidly from members of Congress that these Congress people feel accessible to us. I worry about the hopelessness a disconnect between those with power in our democracy and their constituents creates. Most of my listeners are young or youngish or young at heart. We're beaten down, but we want a better world. We believe that we deserve it. We believe it's the right thing. Consider the recent malicious and terrifying abortion bans in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. As of this recording, who knows if there will be more. The representatives seem faceless. Who are these people making decisions about our lives and bodies? We don't talk to them directly. We don't know them. We call their offices and make our voices heard. Maybe we attend town halls. But I spent the last few days staring at the photos of the men who voted for the abortion bans and of the female governor of Alabama who signed off on it. These representatives purport to represent us, but they're far away. They don't seem like people to us, and we're not treated as human by them. We need to break down the barriers between Congress people and the people. So this week on the show, we have a Democrat from Southern California, Representative Mark Takano, the first openly gay person of Asian descent elected to Congress. And his people reached out to Bad With Money to speak about a report he put together on the dire issue of housing affordability, unlawful landlord practices, the federal blocks and inability for workers to get the overtime pay they deserve, and minimum wage and everything that has to do with housing. Takano's report was comprehensive and fascinating. He told us about the work on overtime pay he'd been making progress on during the Obama years before Trump's people showed up and ruined it. And later, off mic, he mentioned pressing his colleagues to make more appearances on podcasts. He thinks more congresspeople could reach the demographic they need to reach most through being more accessible.
2: I'm Mark Takano. I'm a United States congressman, and I represent a district about an hour and a half to two hours, depending on traffic, sometimes three <laughs> hours, east of here in mm-hmm. the studio. Your studio is here in Hollywood, I guess, mm-hmm. this is. And uh, and, and so I, I represent the communities of Riverside, Marina Valley, Paris, and Arupa Valley.
0: So you were the first openly gay person of Asian descent in Congress. When mm-hmm. were you elected?
2: I was elected in 2012.
0: And how, how did that feel? How was that?
2: Uh, it was amazing yeah. actually to be elected. So I was, you know, are you a native Californian?
0: No, uh, I'm from Florida, and I apologize constantly. Okay,
2: <laughs> if you were from California, yeah, I think your impression of where, where the district I represent in Riverside is that oh, Riverside County isn't that really conservative? Because yes. people would say, right? Don't you you have that feeling? I right? do
0: have that feeling.
2: So Riverside County had been represented for. 20 years
0: mm-hmm.
2: by Republicans. It was totally red. Mm-hmm. And for Riverside County to elect the first Open the Game member of Congress from the state of California
0: mm-hmm.
2: was a, a shock. Yeah. Right?
0: So you just came out with this extensive report about housing affordability, which has a lot of elements wrapped up in it, like stagnating wages and high costs of rent and systemic injustices. So what made you want to put out this report and focus on these issues?
2: Well— Because I care about the people I represent, Mm -hmm. and I'm looking for solutions to housing problems. And housing is an issue that's, I think, widespread in California. I think every member of Congress, um, every community in our our state is experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know that an indicator of how much people are struggling is what percentage of their income they're spending on housing, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a mortgage or rent. Uh, most financial advisors and planners say that, really, you shouldn't spend more than one-third of your income on housing. And over half of my constituents are spending more than half of their income on rent. We know also that if you're paying more than half of your income in rent, you're probably not able to save for your retirement. You're probably right. not able to... Pay for a lot of extras probably means that you're tapping into credit to get by,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and that's not just that's not just Riverside. That's ten million American households have you know have that situation where they're spending half of their income on rent. So like right, so you talked about you're not able to save. So what are the like greater implications of on, on class and economic mobility? I mean, these people, there's no way to get out of their current situation basically.
2: Yeah, well. It, it means that they're going to increasingly feel stressed. Mm-hmm. The choices they're going to have when they buy a car, the credit rating that's going to suffer mm-hmm. um, because of their increased use of credit. You know, there's a saying that it's really hard to be poor.
3: <laughs> and, yeah. Right? Yeah.
2: And in this case, uh, you know, the barriers that start to become larger Or the snowballing effect of all of the stressors Mm -hmm. on an impoverished person who's not earning enough income. And that's the other thing our report talks about is that incomes have dipped in Riverside County as a whole by about 7%, while rents have increased by 3%. And part of the rental increase is that a lot of people in the 2008 uh, recession, Riverside County, San Bernardino County, they were the epicenters of the mortgage crisis you know, a big part of what led to this huge debacle in 2008. Well, we had, you know, thousands of people turned out of their homes. They needed someplace to go. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they go into to rents. Um, yeah. They, they go to rentals. And, of course, rents rise when single-family homeowners are turned out in the streets.
0: Yeah. So the argument is that, like, rent is determined by the market. So if people are paying that rent, is that just like the market can bear it and there's no incentive to change?
2: Well, the way the market works, I mean, it's it's the rents would go up. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other factors that are keeping rents high uh, and also forcing families to spend so much of their income on mm-hmm. rent. We have federal programs through HUD, which is the Housing Urban Development you know, Department, and there have never been enough, say, Section 8 housing vouchers, yeah. uh, which would assist people yeah. in being able to pay their rent. Uh, I just checked the statistic this morning. I think we have close to 68,000 people in Riverside County on a waiting list for those vouchers. They're funded only for like maybe eight to 9000
0: Yeah, uh, you mentioned that in the report. W- why? Why? I don't understand, like... I don't understand that
2: <laughs> well it's a federal policy we just don't fu- we haven't funded the number of vouchers that people would qualify by income um and uh president Trump um, has proposed even more cuts uh, to these housing vouchers and to a slew of other housing programs which help poor people low-income people be able to get housing and affordable housing
0: yeah I mean that the num that's those numbers are just staggering that it's Eighty five hundred to.
2: That's, that's just my county.
0: That's just your county. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. I just moved, and it is wild that to like even if the rent is low in the in the place that you're moving to, the first security, the last secu- like uh, what you're expected to pay up front. Yes, is wild.
2: Yes, that's a big barrier. Yeah, and on there's a part of me that says you know a lot of landlords out there are. Mom and pop landlords. Right. I mean, so there's, they're trying to build out, you know, their assets and, you know, build for their retirement someday. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's fair if they want to, sc- you know, especially if they're going to live upstairs, that they screen somebody mm-hmm. uh, if they're going to be a good renter or not or if they're going to have problems and because they've got to make their mortgage payment on time and right. all that. But at the same time, the fact that, You know, poor people with not so great credit scores also have to face a security deposit that may grow or not grow depending on how credit worthy you are. That's an issue. So it's not good on the long term that we have a persistent housing issue and a lot of people not building wealth over time. Right. And that's only going to be a time bomb for all of us if we've got a lot of poor people entering into retirement age with nothing. You know, home ownership has been a big part of that for most Americans in terms of being able to build wealth and intergenerational wealth. Yes,
0: that's the huge thing. So when you're talking about credit scores, because when you – I read in the report the idea of of eliminating credit scores as a a way of deciding who can rent from you. And I was like, it's become so normalized. Like, yeah, they just check your credit score.
2: Yeah, I mean – This is a draft report, so I'm like going back and forth on this. On On the credit score thing, yeah. On the credit score issue. Because I'm very sympathetic to uh, the fact, well, look, I represent
0: also landlords.
2: I I represent (laughs) landlords, but no, but I represented communities where large numbers of people are spending more than half their incomes on rent. Mm -hmm. And I'm wanting to know just how these credit scores affect their ability to pay rent, whether they're being charged higher rent.
0: Sure. It is sort of counterintuitive to be like, oh, you have a low credit score. You should pay more.
2: (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, you know, buying a car is the same thing. Yeah. Oh, it makes sense
0: for the landlord. It's just tough on the person.
2: Yeah. So I think we need to find a policy that gets people into rent. They can pay their rent rent. Mm-hmm. I mean, the renters, that like, uh, we don't have these undue barriers to them getting housing because we don't want them on the street either. We don't want right. people living out of the cars. Right. So.
0: Well, so going back to credit scores, the other thing is uh, that it is sort of a, a known, like, open secret weird thing that, that credit scores are sort of racist anyway. So that kind of compounds who yeah. can't get, you know, like, it's it's left over from... Uh, I I guess from redlining or from like this history of not being able to get good.
2: This is something that I am learning more about. Yeah. Um, and that I want to know more about. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing some research which says that credit scores are being used f- beyond what they were originally used for. That, yeah. That checking people's credit is moving into a whole range of. Of areas like employment, sometimes yeah. you're denied, sometimes you're denied employment based on a credit score. Sometimes it makes sense. I mean, if you are in the military and are in intelligence, mm-hmm. and if your credit is really shaky and your finances are really bad, theoretically that can make you vulnerable to you know foreign espionage or something, right? Sure, but You, can, you yeah. can become a security risk, right? Sure. So I think we need to we need to carefully look at how relevant is your credit score right. to your being employed or not employed? Yeah. Right?
0: So, yeah, why are incomes going down? It is a perfect storm of rents going up and incomes going down. Why are they going down?
2: Well, I think we see technology mm-hmm. um, being a factor. We see you know technology replacing people. It's been a long scourge of our economy that – productivity overall has gone up, right? And businesses are more productive. Mm -hmm. And over time, profits have gone up, but that has not been really shared by the workers, right? The people who work are not sharing in the... So what you see is that's one of the sources of the wealth gap in our country, the income inequality, is the people who own stocks and bonds and... Um, who are in the top you know, 1% or 2%, their incomes have gotten bigger. And meanwhile, the working class, middle class, their incomes have stayed stagnant mm-hmm. or they've decreased. Many states have passed uh, the minimum wage increases. Uh, mm-hmm. California is on course to have a $15 minimum wage. Uh, but in many parts of our country... Minimum wage has stayed low. The federal minimum wage, you know, has been stuck at like $7 and change. Yeah. Right? I mean, who Mm -hmm. can live on $7 anywhere in the country?
0: We'll be right back with Representative Takano after this break. And now back from the break, let's get into it.
2: Uh, You can't underestimate the role of the federal government and governments at all levels in terms of how they write the rules of the economy. You know, 1935 was when they established a the Fair Labor Standards Act, which created the federal minimum wage. But at the same time the minimum wage was established, they also, as part, they, they knew that certain employers, that employers would look for ways to get around the minimum wage.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the way you could get around the minimum wage is to say, oh, you're a salaried worker, or you're a manager, and so get how this works. It's kind of complicated, so stay with me. If they declare you to be a salaried worker, you're not being paid by the hour anymore, right? Oh. Right? Your, your salary is oh. your salary. And if you're a manager at a certain level, like, managers don't get overtime. And so what the law did is they created a duties test to, like, say, well, we can ask a series of questions and say, are you really a manager or not? It's a classification thing. So. You could be at a fast food restaurant and you're managing that restaurant. So, as the manager, you may actually be flipping the burgers, you know. Right. You're not doing managerial duties. No. And they may be paying you like $35,000 a year. Right. Which, when you break it down by hour, is not all that much. But they could ask you to work an extra 15 hours a week or 20 hours a week Mm -hmm. and not pay you overtime. Yeah. So there's a certain level at which you get paid overtime, a salary threshold. Yeah. So that salary threshold is right now set at $23,000 a year. So if you earn more than $23,000 oh a God. year, which is nothing, right, you don't get overtime. So the tricky thing is that some a lot of employers are like saying, you're really a salaried worker, not an hourly worker. That, so that's a that's a way that it can undermine and get around the minimum wage. Yeah. Right? So, get this in 1974 or 75 the percentage of salaried workers which is a large number of people mm-hmm. that were eligible for overtime was over sixty percent you could say to your employer you could get it enforced and say employer I'm earning less than this certain amount if I if you make me work over 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. You have to pay me time and a half or send me home. Right. Do you know what that, do you know what eligible, who's eligible today? The number of the salaried workforce, the percentage of the salaried workforce that's eligible for today is 7%.
0: I was like, it's about to be under 10%. I'm about to be furious.
2: (laughs) Well, okay. So (laughs) we go from like it's 1974, 75. Of course. Over 60% of the salaried workers. We're not talking about wage earners. Right. We are now at 7%. Okay. President Obama, before he left office, his Secretary of Labor was about to publish rules. I did publish rules. They were going to set a new salary threshold, which would have taken us from seven percent to about a third, thirty-three percent of the of the workforce. Right? Okay. I was pushing for more. I said, you know, we should try to match at least what we did in seventy five. And right. I was pushing I was I was wrote a letter to President Obama saying we should Get it up to where we were in 1974. No wonder wages have declined. Of course. Right? These are rules to protect workers and to give them leverage in the workplace, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, what happened was that a court in Texas invalidated President Obama's rule and said it was unconstitutional and da 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 And then the new Secretary of Labor came in and said, well, I don't quite agree it's unconstitutional. I think the Secretary of Labor should set this. But, of course— Given that he's a Republican, Secretary Acosta, and in line with, I mean, President, even though President Trump said he wanted to help ordinary Americans in his inaugural speech. Sure. His actions show something different. I mean, it's like his secretary. Wait,
0: what? <laughs> That's <laughs> are we sur- never happened before. I,
2: are, we, are we surprised?
0: This so- <laughs> is shocking information.
2: <laughs> I, I'm sorry to bring you such, like, you know, <laughs> sorry, But. But so, so get this, get this. So, Secretary Costas says, well, to show you what a good guy I am, he's proposing a rule uh, to make 15% okay. of the salaried workforce eligible. So, yeah, it's an improvement. But, you know, this is not really. The yeah, kind it's of-
0: not what you were on track so,
2: to do. What's the whole big story? I mean, I, t- I told I t- the whole big story here. We go from 60%, over 60% of the workforce, salaried workforce, eligible for overtime pay to only 7% today, this is just one example of how the rules of the economy that were meant to give ordinary people, most people in their country, the middle class, leverage and protection Mm -hmm. have atrophied over time. Right. Another example is um, how technology is being used to justify the trashing of fair labor standards. Right. right?
0: In what ways? What do you mean?
2: Well— this app like Lyft and Uber right is like well we're bringing like transportation into the 21st century right mm-hmm. this app allows you to like and it is better I mean it's it's faster than calling up the taxi company and getting the cab to come to you but there's an argument over whether or not the uber driver and a Lyft driver should be considered an employee of Lyft. An Uber versus an independent contractor. Mm. So, this difference between employee and independent contractor is huge.
3: Oh, yeah.
0: Bosses love an independent contractor. Th- they do. They love it. So many of my friends work full time at like magazines or places, but they're considered independent contractors. Yes. So they don't have to have health insurance.
2: All that. So, here's our technology. So, back in the day when we had taxis and taxis were owned by companies and the dispatcher was a a human being calling on the radio to dispatch you. I mean, it's pretty clear that you could be an employee of such a company.
0: Yeah, I've seen taxi. Oh, that's (laughs) right. That's
2: right. That's right. Right? With latke or or potato pancake. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all that's changed is the app. The app has just replaced the dispatcher Mm -hmm. is all right. It just makes that more efficient. But it doesn't change the fact that Lyft drivers and uber drivers a lot a lot of them, not all of them a lot of them are really employees yeah you know and how can they unionize and all that and to be able to yeah right to be able to to be able to have some say so mm-hmm. um and so here's an ex- here's how technology is being I think being deceptively used as a political argument to say oh technology is call them employees would somehow. Go against what technology is is doing to change things for the better. Um, I, I think that yeah. te- I think that technology is good. I like Lyft and Uber for its convenience and sure. the fact that it brings me you know a driver right now. Right, but I often wonder how sustainable this is going to be over time.
0: More to come with Representative Takano after this break. And now we're back. You know, I always, it's interesting, like the, that you used to be able to just have your job and then that was your job and you made enough money. I, I saw. You know, there's all these like serial killer documentaries out and I saw like a a funny tweet that was like, the most shocking thing about these serial killer documentaries is the people that are like, yeah, so it was 1974 and I worked part-time at a gas station and I bought a new Camaro. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Like, that's the (laughs) most shocking part of it. Like there's uh, like these things where then people are driving Lyft and Uber, doing Postmates as like a side gig or like a side hustle to sort of supplement their income at their job when their job could just pay them more but they feel i think there's like a desperation now with jobs where people don't want to unionize cuz they're scared of getting fired or they're the power imbalance is off where they're like i don't want to be the squeaky wheel cuz i'll uh, they could just replace me in a second cuz people are vying for so many jobs
2: well that's the issue about about organizing and how yeah. difficult it is to organize because if people are afraid to organize because they're going to get fired, you know that's to me unfair. Um, oh, it's horrible, it's but horrible. I see it
0: happening all like all over.
2: Well, th- yeah. So, fact is a union being in a, if they were unionized, mm-hmm.
0: uh,
2: they would be insulated from su- you know such arbitrary right know, uh, arbitrary moves. You know.
0: Yeah. So, are we we're screwed now? <laughs> like, there's no well, your propo- The proposal is sort of yeah, by the wayside. I, I,
2: it's not by the wayside. It's just that it's hard to get inspired over like we've moved from seven percent of the salary workforce to now fifteen percent. Oh, Congress is a
0: bummer now. That's, well, yeah. No, <laughs> no, this is
2: this has actually been done by the administration. I mean, this is how.
0: Yeah. What?
2: What? How elections were? I don't even want to call that an election because Hillary Clinton got more votes than President Trump. But yeah. But. The, about conce- that the consequence of who's in the White House and somebody who said I'm going to help mm-hmm. uh, the American ordinary Americans, and and what he's really doing is having cabinet officials with this authority not use that authority really for ordinary people, but to slow walk improvements. Mm-hmm. So this is a slow walking another another slow walking of a rule mm-hmm. that could help many more Americans.
0: Can you explain the phenomenon of institutional investors buying large quantities of single family homes in targeted communities? Yeah.
2: So we often had hundreds of thousands of people put out of their homes right. um, by that financial crisis mm-hmm. and the mortgage crisis. And so, you know, under the TARP, I can't remember the name, the, I think it's Troubled Asset Relief Program. Mm-hmm. Are you pretty amazed that I remember that? Um,
0: <laughs> they love I, acronyms. So.
2: What, troubled assets meaning upside down homes, people who had to walk away from mortgages. Right. And there were all these banks with this bad balance sheet. Actually, the federal government was on the hook for, you know, potentially having to pay all this off. So what they did is they, you know, an agency of the federal government bought a lot of these homes, took them off the market, just bought them. Okay. And there were some people who, you know, who were waiting on the sidelines who had saved money and could have bought these homes at great discounts. But there was just such a volume of these homes that I think there was some feeling that um, why not take up the offer of some of these big hedge funds and some of these hedge funds that had some role in actually creating the crisis in the first place (laughs) to go and buy these homes (laughs) at a discount in bulk. So it was a bulk buying of these homes from the federal government. Some people believed that that stabilized prices and put a floor on things, but it also had the effect of keeping small buyers from being able to get those homes at a discount, right? right? And so what these institutional buyers have done is they've created rental homes out of these single-family homes.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, it's one thing to go to your mom-and-pop landlord and ask for your garbage disposal be fixed if, it's, if it went out. Right. Because the, the landlord's responsible for all of that maintenance. Right. But the responsiveness of some of these... I mean, it's been spotted. There are a lot of reports in the press about renters who've rented from these institutions, large institutions, yeah. in single-family homes where they're scattered around. You can see if if you're trying to meet a certain bond payment, the pressures on keeping those expenses low, mm-hmm. uh, and if, and so look like the bond. They, what they did is they securitized, you know, all of these. Rents
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and the rents are what back up the bonds that they issue,
3: mm-hmm. right? and
2: so uh, it's been very profitable for many of these big funds now. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that these are homes that, you know, I thought that over time, as the prices recovered, that that they would sell off these homes.
0: Yeah, and they haven't.
2: I don't think that they are. And in fact, what we're seeing is some evidence that some of these hedge funds want to actually build homes of their own. So keep, like do yeah, keep doing this. Just keep it. doing it. But if you are a renter in one of these single family homes and you have a substantial increasing number of these families doing that, the where's the rent go? The rent's not staying in the community. It's not building equity for the family. It's going to Wall Street mm-hmm. um, and to investors. Often the rental back security industry, mm-hmm. they sort of say, well, this is these are really for families that don't have good credit to be able to get to buy a home and they want to live in a neighborhood where there are good schools and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, but still, you know, the rent on these homes is not like really
0: Right,
3: it's
2: cheap. like this
0: false idea of class mobility when actually it's it's eating away at your income and ability to save.
2: Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, well, so what what we're saying here, I guess what I, I think where you and I probably agree on a lot of stuff Based on the podcast I've listened to, is that it's not all on the individual. It's not yes. it's not the individual's fault mm-hmm. only. I do believe in individual responsibility and initiative. Sure, but I think we need to give. Um, what I think was so valuable at your podcasts is that if people who listen to them understand that it's not completely their fault, that there's also. Something systemic. There is there is a significant role for the federal government, local government, mm-hmm. to all work together because we're all going to suffer the consequences if we keep going in the direction we're going. If income mobility decreases, that's going to affect our politics. That's mm-hmm. going to affect our political stability. It's going to you know affect our security as a country, right? Right. Um, uh, as
0: the place of like the American dream.
2: As a place of and the American Dream is that idea that if you play live and play by the rules here, you work by the rules um
0: yeah, and it's so often not not true now.
2: no, it's um yeah, that it doesn't get you ahead.
0: um I think it's helpful for people listening to hear a member of Congress say that that it is systemic.
2: yes, well, I think there's a lot to, as I said, I mean the, you gave me I gave you some rule the the examples of the rules of the economy. Yeah. Right. Things that we do have control over, you know, the minimum wage. The minimum wage is is a very powerful tool
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, that prior to 1935 was being ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Right. And over the decades, it has taken, you know, to to be able to enforce and 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 raise that wage accordingly has been, you know, uneven and difficult. And the increase in income inequality is has a lot to do with the basic ground rules uh, that are set, mm-hmm. and we in Washington have not kept pace with that.
0: Yeah, so obviously you have a large scope of work ahead of you. Um, what's something that like you feel hopeful about when you wake up? Like, what's the motivator?
2: Well, I'll tell you, it's. Um, It's not something I'm in touch with all the time, but I was back in my district speaking to students in Myrna Valley, Mm -hmm. and all the kids from all the different high schools who were students of the year were being honored. And they invited me to give like an opening speech or somehow bless the conference. Sure, yeah. As a a congressman. Not that I'm a priest, but I was (laughs) there. And I said, I looked out to them and I said, you know... None of the people in this room. I mean, these two communities are uniformly modest income, mm-hmm. right? None of the parents there could have been involved in the scandal involving, par- you know, like paying off.
0: Oh uh, yeah, the huge solving, US you know, college getting, scandal.
2: Yeah. Cuz I know one of my one of the kids in that community made it into Brown University, mm-hmm. right? And that's a huge thing, you know, for someone from this community. that's overcoming I know that one of my high schools in that school district, it's a very Latino, probably 80% uh, free or just school lunch qualifying district. It's uniformly modest income, low income. And that there's a high school that has a remarkable teacher that's produced large numbers of Latinos that score fours and fives on the physics AP test. Mm -hmm. Right. But there are stories like this that don't get told. and. Frankly, I'm getting a little emotional talking about this because this is the reason I want to fight in Washington because this is the hope of our country. These people want to be economically mobile and they're working hard. And I said, you know, I said, don't any of you think about that, that scandal with kids and rich parents cheating to get their kids into not even in grade schools, but okay schools. Okay schools. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to get, I'm going to get some comments maybe about that. But here's a, here's a line I said. I said, you know let's congratulate your parents for being hardworking parents that worry over you, sacrifice for you.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I says, and I want you to know something. You guys actually played on the soccer team. Yeah. Right? You actually played soccer. You, you didn't, did the you work. Didn't, you, didn't get a, you didn't get a coach to say that, you know, that you should go to be, get into the school because of that. Right. So, what inspires me every day is to know that I represent a community like that. Mm-hmm. That this is the cradle of the American middle class. And I'm what keeps me up at night is that our democracy is under assault. Yeah. So that's also I told him the same thing. I said that the division, the racist rhetoric we see,
0: mm-hmm.
2: all of that can be dispiriting.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I said, but I I want you to not lose your hope, to not lose your sense of value, to lot the faith that you guys have. That all of you have. Mm-hmm. Many of them are very spiritual and religious. Mm-hmm. And I said, you remember that you're the hope of this community. And the unreality, the unreality is that people cheat to get into universities. That that's that's the norm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I want to make sure that you know that you are the norm
0: mm-hmm.
2: and to, to not get cynical. Yeah. I said, because then we're gonna be then we'll then we will have lost. So that's what worries me the most is that people are going to get cynical and they will get demoralized by what they see going on in Washington, by a leader who is very cynical. And I keep I, I, I stay awake at night sometimes thinking about this, but I think about two people who are the antidote to the cynicism and the demoralization. One is John Lewis. John Lewis, on the day that Justice Kennedy resigned and we knew that there was probably going to be a really conservative justice. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was, my staff was just, my chief of staff was apoplectic. He was just so angry. (laughs) Chief of
0: staffs tend to be.
2: My chief of staff was like, (laughs) I was like, Kirk. And I must have had just a very dour expression on my face when I got in the elevator to go vote and John Lewis was standing right next to me and he, mu- I must have been in my head just whatever because he said what's wrong brother? <laughs> <laughs> he said what's wrong brother? And I said oh sir I don't know I-, I must be very disappointed by the news this morning and he says don't worry he said We're going to get through this. And he had tweeted out earlier that day, uh, be hopeful, Mm -hmm. be optimistic, Mm -hmm. because ours is not the battle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. Ours is the battle of a lifetime. And if you remember that, you know, he had his skull cracked open,
3: crossing
2: the bridge, and he could not have known that there would have been a better day but for... His faith and his conviction mm-hmm. that he was fighting for that. So I know when I remember that that I I start to get the worries out of my head at night, mm-hmm. go to sleep, get rested, because I know another, another the second story I want to tell you is about Barbara Jordan, Congresswoman, woman from Houston, Texas, who gave me an inspiration to actually go into politics when I was I started thinking about it when I was like. Uh, 12, 13 years old that summer of 73 mm-hmm. when they had the impeachment hearings. I might have been 73, 74, can't remember exactly when, but yeah, yeah, yeah. it was between my sixth and seventh grade.
0: I think 74.
2: And then I always tell people, I always tell young people uh, who don't know her uh, go into YouTube and watch her opening seven, eight minute speech on the House Judiciary Committee. And she talked about the irony of we, the people and how she was not included in we, the people
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and that she was sitting now on a committee that was sitting in judgment as an inquisitor of the president. And then she talked about her belief and faith in the constitution was whole, complete and total. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: So I, I take these two points of, of faith and it's an attitude more than anything else that I got to bring into Congress every day.
0: Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And you know, Who am I to be any less optimistic and hopeful than John Lewis? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And my responsibility is to convey that sense of confidence that both he and Barbara Jordan had, he has and she had,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and set the example as the representative of my community, and to not To not say that there's nothing at stake and that there's not anything to be concerned about Mm -hmm. and not to engage and to organize and and to somehow every citizen has to be part of that, of generating the public will and public sentiment for our Constitution Mm -hmm. to be preserved, our democracy to be preserved. I, I do want to alarm people and say, look, our democracy is under attack. Yeah. But at the same time, I want to say we're going to get through this. Be mm-hmm. hopeful and optimistic. But that doesn't mean relax. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. It's both.
3: I right? mean, it's beautiful right? sentiment. right? Yeah, right? it's
2: both. It's, 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 I know John, I know Mr. Lewis is very concerned. And yeah. He's, he's very concerned. He, and he's getting up there in age, and his travel schedule is something. He's, he's everywhere because he's under huge demand and huge request. Mm-hmm. And I, I will tell you, we ended the Democratic Issues retreat a few, a few weeks ago with him. Mm -hmm. Uh, having the last word and uh, could not have been more appropriate uh, because he just sort of emanates a a personal moral authority that, you know, is is quite extraordinary. And I, I, you know, I think every American needs to channel him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll just, look, be John Lewis. That's the message. What would John
2: Lewis do? What would would John Lewis do? And sometimes the answer is not comfortable because... You know, it might mean sitting in, it might mean, mm-hmm. it, it never means violence, it, it never means uh, being hateful, but it means um, always taking action.
0: Yeah. Wow, that was that was very beautiful.
2: Okay. <laughs> no, that was great. I like being on podcasts because I can wave my arms around. And
0: nobody I, sees nobody you. Nobody sees me doing it. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. In this moment, when countless human rights violations are being perpetrated by treasonous people in positions of power who don't have to suffer the ramifications of their cruel and inhumane policies, we're reminded that the fight for our human rights and economic justice is ongoing. And there are people in power that care. Bad With Money is a production of Stitcher. Our show is produced and edited by Melissa Yeager Miller and sound engineered and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our associate producer is Kristen Torres, and our supervising producer is Josephine Martirana. Our executive producer is Chris Bannon. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and was written by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen. And I'm Gabby Dunn, and I will see you next week.